Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry is a brilliant economic historian. He was actually... uh, uh, has served uh, as a freelance uh, journalist and uh, has traveled to 86 countries on six continents uh, pursuing uh, that particular vocation. Uh, we're going to talk to Larry about a recent article that he wrote featuring former President Woodrow Wilson. Now, you may be wondering why would we want to talk about a president that was elected back in 1912, more than 100 years ago? Well, Woodrow Wilson campaigned as a champion of liberty, but once in office, he did quite the opposite. And one of the things on Mr. Wilson's resume is the fact that he signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. And the Federal Reserve Bank really controls U.S. policy. And the Federal Reserve, as we've talked about here on the program many, many times, is a private group of bankers. And back in 1913... With Mr. Wilson's signature, the Federal Reserve Act became law, and at that point in time, private bankers have controlled U.S. monetary policy. So we're going to talk a bit about parallels between what Mr. Wilson did and what today's politicians uh, are doing. And uh, Wilson was quite a progressivist, and uh, certainly we have a big progressive movement uh, on the country here today as well. So we're going to talk about parallels. Now, I have been offering the last couple of weeks here on the program our December client newsletter. It's titled Capitalizing on Uncertainty. And the report is really a 2021 forecast issue where we talk about things that you might want to think about doing now in your personal financial situation in order to take advantage of and capitalize on the uncertainty Uh, of which there certainly is no shortage presently. So if you'd like to get your copy of that report, simply visit requestyourreport.com, requestyourreport.com, and I'd be very glad to send you out a complimentary copy of the report. You know, today in this segment, I want to talk to you a bit about a topic that really will affect your entire financial life over the next couple decades. I want to talk to you about the relationship between the money supply and the price of gold and give you some historical reference so you can see just how out of control, just how how off the charts money creation has gotten. Now, when we start to talk about money creation and the money supply, there's a couple terms that are often tossed around. One is the M1 money supply, one is the M2 money supply. Well, the M1 money supply, quite simply, is physical currency and coin. It's the money that you have in your purse and wallet. It's the coins and the green paper stuff. And it also would be deposits that are immediately available. So it would be like a checking account at your bank. So M1 is really immediate money cash in your wallet, in your purse, or under the mattress, and money in a checking account. Now, M2 includes all the immediate money 
but it also includes near-immediate money. So in addition to the physical currency and the coin and the demand deposits like checking accounts, it also includes time deposits like CDs and money market securities. Now, if you look at the M2 money supply, it's presently about $19 trillion. That's an approximate number. Now, if you go back to 2016, okay, let's go back just four years, the M2 money supply was about $12 trillion. So in a little more than four years, the money supply has increased 60%. Now, as a side note, that alone is certainly enough to create inflation. And if you look at lumber prices, if you look at grocery prices, we're certainly seeing a fair amount of inflation. Now, there's a fundamental rule of economics that applies here. That rule is simply that scarcity creates value. Abundance does not create value. One of the reasons gold is so valuable is that there's not much of it. And the more money that is created, the more abundant money becomes, the less valuable it is and the less it purchases. So you don't have to be an economist to understand that. Scarcity creates value. Abundance does not. Now, if M2 money supply has increased by about 60% or so in the last four-plus years, you have to take a look at what gold prices have done. Well, gold prices have not quite kept pace. Back in 2016, gold hit a high of $13.75 an ounce. Earlier this year, gold hit a high of about $2,050 an ounce. Again, these numbers are approximate. So gold's up about 49% over that same time frame. Now, what's important to understand is that gold is a constant metric. An ounce of gold looks the same today as it did four years ago, a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago. In fact, as Larry Reed will point out in the interview in the next segment, uh, really, if you take a look at a loaf of bread priced in gold, uh, the price of a loaf of bread in gold has not changed since the Roman Empire. Well, that's not true of the U.S. dollar. The more money that is created the less value a dollar has, the less that it will buy. Again, abundance does not create value. Scarcity does. Well, if you go look at the website, and I'd encourage you to do this, go to usdebtclock.org. And there's a lot of information there. The first thing you'll see is that the official U.S. national debt now is about $27.5 trillion. However... If you take a look on the chart, you'll find that there is something called a U.S. dollar to gold ratio. And there's lots of different ways to define that, but this is how the Debt Clock website defines it. This is the year-over-year increase in the M2 money supply divided by the yearly world production of gold in ounces. So it's the yearly increase in M2 money supply. How much more money is there? That's immediate money and nearly immediate money. And how much gold was produced that year. So 
it's really a measure of how much money was created versus how much real money or gold was produced. Now, when you take a look at that ratio and you go all the way back to 1913, the dollar to gold ratio was about $29 an ounce, the equivalent of $29 an ounce. So in other words, you take a look at how much, how much money was created versus how much gold was mined, and you find that the money created divided by the ounces of gold mined would equate to about $29 an ounce. Today, if you look at that same ratio over the last year, take a look at the money created and divide it by the number of ounces of gold that were actually produced, you get a factor of $33,000 an ounce. Now, back in 1913, gold sold for about $20 an ounce, and the dollar-to-gold ratio using this calculation methodology was about $29 an ounce. Today, gold is selling for around $1,900 an ounce, and yet, this ratio has gold at $33,000 an ounce. Now, is that my forecast? Do I think gold will go to thirty-three dollars or $34,000 an ounce? Not necessarily. I think, however, when you look at that ratio, it's got to go higher in nominal terms. Now, what do I mean going higher in nominal terms? I mean that gold priced in dollars, which are buying less, will be worth more. In real terms, though, Gold doesn't change. An ounce of gold, as I said, looks the same today as it did 10 years ago, as it did 100 years ago, as it did 1,000 years ago. That is a very interesting way to analyze where gold prices may go. As we move in to 2021, if you're just joining me, I'm making available again our 2021 forecast issue called Capitalizing on Uncertainty. I talk about gold and the outlook for gold and stocks and real estate uh, in the report. If you would like to get your copy, all you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com. We're making that available for one more week. Uh, you can get your copy of the report mailed to you. Just let us know where to mail it. Again, it's requestyourreport.com. Also, quick reminder, uh, if you've not yet visited our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, I would encourage you to do so. We have a lot of free resources available there. Uh, you can also download the Your RLA app on the website. Uh, once you have the app and on the website, you will get the podcast version of this radio program. You can also get our weekly free Portfolio Watch newsletter. And you'll also get access to our weekly client-only webinars. So that is at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Uh, I'd encourage you to go there, nose around the website. Again, there's a lot of free resources there. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that because nobody cares as much about your money as you do. So that's why we make all these resources available to you. I'll be back after these words with Larry Reed. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure again today of talking to returning guest, Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, Larry is the president emeritus of FEE.org. That is the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, 
prior to serving as president of FEE, uh, Larry was also the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy for 21 years. When he was last on the program in May, I chatted with him about his excellent book, Was Jesus a Socialist? I'd encourage you to check that out. And uh, you can read everything that Larry writes, and he is a prolific author, at www.lawrencewreed.com. Lawrence is L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, W. Reed, and Reed is R-E-E-D. So, Larry, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Dennis. It's a great pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. Well, I'd like to talk a bit about your recent article titled, How Woodrow Wilson Persecuted Hutterites Who Refused to Support His War. And I learned a bit from your article. I've I've never been a Woodrow Wilson fan because I'm not a big fan of the Federal Reserve. And um, Woodrow Wilson actually uh, made some promises during his campaign about liberty and how, uh, you know, liberty's never come from the government. And then he got elected and did exactly the opposite as to what he said he would do during the campaign. Imagine that, a politician that didn't do what he said. Uh, Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to, although it's a very sad story. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was not the first, nor would he be the last politician to promise one thing and do another. But in 1912, uh, he was in a four-way race for president of the United States against uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who had served previously for eight years and then was out of office uh, for four. And then uh, another candidate in the 1912 contest was the incumbent, uh, William Howard Taft. And then there was a a third-party candidate that ended up getting 6% of the vote. So it was a four-way race. Uh, Wilson won with 42% of the popular vote. And he promised uh, that, uh, as was the tradition of the Democratic Party up to that point, that he would uh, be a defender of liberty. He said during the campaign, in fact, that the history of liberty is a history of the limitation of governmental power, not the increase of it. But then he presided over, uh, in two terms, the most repressive anti-liberty presidency ever in the the, uh, White House. Larry, let's just uh, expand on that a little bit because, uh, you you know, the story of... uh uh, the Fed, um, literally, the, the Federal Reserve Act, I believe, was signed into law by uh, Mr. Wilson um, in 1913, and I think it was right around the Christmas holiday. Can you expand on yes. that a bit? That's true. It was passed in 1913, the first uh, year of his, before the first year was up of his first term. And uh, uh, it had been percolating quietly for some time. There were people, very prominent people, who had been advocating for a central bank, but the average American didn't feel the need for one. But um, uh, that was shepherded to fruition with the uh, signing of the the Fed into law by Woodrow Wilson. It cartelized or monopolized the banking system by putting the Fed, a government central bank, at the top. It didn't do away with private banks, obviously. But uh, now they would have to sing out of the same hymn book in so many ways. It became an engine of monetary and credit manipulation and uh, inflation. And it was the principal cause of not only the Great Depression that began in 1929, but of most of the recessions we've had ever since. 
And, you know, Larry, uh, a couple of years ago, you were on the program and we talked about your article uh, titled, I believe, Great Myths of the Great Depression. And, you know, just as a, a, a side note, because I want to get back to, to, to Woodrow Wilson, but as a side note, can you just briefly expand about, upon how Federal Reserve policy, because, you know, the, the Fed is or should be dominating the headlines now, given the, just the massive amounts of money creation that's taking place. But, but can you just talk very briefly about uh, how you've concluded that, that, that the Fed was the primary culprit in, in causing the Great Depression? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, that is not only uh, my conclusion, it was even the admission of a former Federal Reserve Board of Governors chairman, uh, Ben Bernanke, a few years ago when he turned to economist Milton Friedman at an event I attended, I saw him uh, talk about this, and he said, yeah, you're right. We caused the Great Depression. Uh, we didn't mean to, but we won't do it again. <laughs> but the Federal Reserve in the 1920s set the stage for the sharp downturn that we call the Great Depression by expanding money and credit over about a five-year period from 24 to early 29 by about 66%. And most Americans remember from their history that that was the period of the Roaring Twenties. We had a, a, a boom, uh, we had a bubble, in fact, in things like the stock market. It was all fed by the easy money, the driving down of interest rates by the Fed uh, creating money out of thin air. And for a time, you know, we all felt that, uh, hey, this feels pretty good. It was like the drunk at the party who's uh, drinking like a fish. He feels pretty good for the moment. But the hangover came in uh, late 29 and then lasted for a decade uh, after the uh, Federal Reserve-induced bubble uh, burst. Well, and, you know, when you, when you get back to, to, to Wilson, uh, you know, he was very anti-liberty. Your article points out that uh, uh, in addition to – uh, you know, basically creating the Federal Reserve, and and uh, uh, he also signed prohibition into law, um, which obviously uh, that's an infringement on liberty. Not that everybody drinks or should drink, but certainly uh, uh, that was something that that he did, which infringes on personal liberties as well as other things. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, he was really quite the nasty fellow. He uh, resegregated the federal government. Uh, he was personally a supporter of the science of eugenics, and I say science in quotes because uh, a lot of people think it's just a fraudulent, race, racist-based uh, view of humanity. Uh, he uh, uh, imposed all kinds of economic controls on the economy. He squashed civil liberties. Uh, the article you referred to uh, concerned the Hutterites. Uh, I thought this was one of the most egregious violations of personal liberties that Woodrow Wilson was ever responsible for. The Hutterites uh, were an Anabaptist uh, sect of uh, Christian faith, living in their own self-sustaining farm communities in mostly the, the uh, Dakotas. And uh, one of the articles of their faith was always uh, a kind of radical pacifism. They did not believe in taking up arms. They lived peacefully until Woodrow Wilson imposed the draft, uh, of course, along with the consent of Congress, in 1917. And, boy, the Wilson administration went after the Hutterites like you wouldn't believe, uh, jailing them, uh, subjecting them in induction facilities to all kinds of abuse and torture. Uh, there were four Hutterites in particular uh, who were uh, summoned to the induction center in uh, Washington state. And uh, two of them ultimately were killed in prison 
by uh, federal authorities, by the way they uh, they were treated. And Wilson never said anything about it because he thought it was the duty of every American to be to uh, serve the state, uh, even if they disagreed with the war, even if it was a religious-based uh, conscientious objection. And uh, the treatment of the Hutterites was just absolutely unforgivable. You know, Larry, and, and to just maybe draw a, a modern parallel, and you can certainly disagree with this, but, you know, it, it seems that um, anyone that disagrees with the narrative that um, is being uh, promulgated, to use that term, by the mainstream media today, uh, there's a lot of intolerance that exists today, and, 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 and you know, you can comment on that, but it, but it seems that this has been going on for a very long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, intolerance is one of the central features, although they never trumpet it uh, publicly, of the progressive agenda. <clears throat> Wilson was a progressive icon and still is to a lot of progressives. Uh, these are people who believe in a kind of moral relativism, uh, end justifies the means, that if you just put the right people in charge of society, uh, armed with political power, you can run society better than private uh, free individuals can. So uh, they will do almost anything, many of them, uh, to put themselves in power and push other people around. And uh, so Wilson was no exception. And you mentioned also that uh, you know Wilson had no qualms about jailing people that he disagreed with. You know, you can expand on that, but there's certainly a, a, a faction of the, the far left presently that is echoing a similar sentiment for anybody that, you know, disagrees with the current agenda. Oh, yeah. It's uh, intolerance writ large. In fact, uh, when you look at those of a leftist or socialist or progressive perspective, you find that uh, they don't have a laundry list of helpful tips and suggestions that they want to convince you to embrace, uh, they really have an agenda to impose what they think is right on everybody else. Uh, that's why I say that uh, socialism, a uh, uh, core uh, tenet of the uh, progressive agenda, socialism is uh, defined by the use of force. Uh, if, if it's voluntary, it's not socialism. So from the left, you have this enduring and deep-seated intolerance that shows up uh, in every way. I mean, they are, they are not about uh, peaceful cooperation and voluntary collaboration. They are all about the concentration of power uh, in the hands of the state uh, for the purpose of taking, taking charge of other people's lives. And, you know, Larry, getting back to your article um, on the Hutterites, um, seems that a lot of these people just said, uh, look, we're, we're going to leave, if, if I read your article correctly. That's right. Uh, there were uh, almost 11,000 Hutterites, mostly in the Dakotas at the time of Woodrow Wilson's presidency. They had settled there after, uh, over generations, being persecuted in Europe. Uh, and they thought they found a place where they could be left alone, but uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, interrupted that. So uh, with this persecution and the death of the two Hutterite men I mentioned in uh, federal prison, then uh, almost the entire population of American Hutterites, nearly 11,000 people, uh, pulled up stakes and went to Canada. 
Well, the clock tells me uh, we are out of time for this segment. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, you can read everything that Larry writes at his website, lawrencewreed.com. If you're just joining us, Lawrence is L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. W. Reed, Reed is R-E-E-D, so it's lawrencewreed.com. And I will continue my conversation with Mr. Larry Reed after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio my guest today is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, if you've been a longtime listener to the program, you may recall my interview with Larry back in May when I chatted with him about his book, Was Jesus a Socialist? A terrific book that is available, uh, I'm sure, at Amazon. I'd encourage you to pick it up. You can also read all of Larry's current articles at lawrencewreed.com. I'd encourage you to check that out as well. Um, Larry, we've been chatting a bit about the article you wrote, um, how Woodrow Wilson persecuted Hutterites who refused to support his war. And in the last segment, we talked about the fact that uh, while campaigning as being a champion of liberty, uh, Mr. Wilson actually imposed uh, prohibition. He signed the Federal Reserve Act into law and actually persecuted a group of, of pacifists known as the Hutterites. So, Let's just, based on that um, not, not very illustrious legacy, in my view, um, is, is the legacy of Woodrow Wilson still hanging around? Is it still impacting or influencing uh, politics today? Unfortunately, it is, uh, Dennis, maybe more than any of us uh, might imagine. Uh, keep in mind that when he became president in 1913, having won the election in 1912, he was the first Democrat to occupy the White House since Grover Cleveland back in the 1890s. In between, you had three Republican presidents, uh, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, and William Howard Taft. Well, uh, it's amazing when you think back that we had Grover Cleveland, who was one of the most uh, limited government, pro-freedom, best uh, Democrat presidents, uh, best of the Democrat presidents in our history, I think, and then the next Democrat president, Woodrow Wilson, is the worst in our history. What happened? Well, you had the rise of the progressive idea in the interim there in the late 1890s, early, 19th, early 20th century, the idea that, hey, we, we just need to centralize power in the hands of a smart elite in Washington and let them uh, manage and run society. Well, that philosophy essentially had taken over the Democratic Party, and Woodrow Wilson was its first uh, practitioner in the White House itself. And that philosophy has, has deepened and uh, been the governing philosophy of the Democratic Party ever since. The, the notion that uh, you know, bigger government is always better government, and you just put the right people in charge of concentrated political power, and all kinds of magical things happen. So what we end up getting, of course, is massive growth of regulation, of spending, of debt, of intrusiveness of the federal establishment, it really goes back uh, more than to any other single person to Woodrow Wilson. And you know, when when you just look at uh, you know how the Fed came to be, um, you know, reading uh, the creature from Jekyll Island and and, and other historical accounts, um, you know, J.P. Morgan and John Rockefeller were were very influential in in getting that act written several years before Wilson signed it into law. Uh, which kind of provides some evidence that we've got, 
you know, some some elites, some very influential people that are uh, uh, steering politicians using whatever means they use uh, in the direction they want them to go. And certainly that particular phenomenon has not gone away. If anything, it's uh, it's intensified. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the counterpart to the J.P. Morgans of that era would be today's uh, tech giants, the social media giants who uh, lean decisively to the left and are using their uh, progressive credentials to try to silence differing opinions, uh, to favor those who support their political agenda. It's the same same old story. Uh, you know, there is one um, motivation uh, in human behavior that I think is as destructive as any other, if, if not the most destructive, and that is the, the lust for power, to be in charge, to push people around, to be near the pinnacle of... Uh, of power and the glitz and the glamour and the limelight that comes from uh, being in, in power or close to it. Well, it's, it's the same old thing. We've been fighting this uh, for centuries, for for uh, millennia, as a matter of fact. The desire of some to run the lives of others and then the, the desire of everybody else simply to be left alone. So, Larry, given where we are today, I mean, in my view, we are, uh, as we record this, we are at a significant crossroads. Um how do you see Woodrow Wilson's legacy impacting our lives, or the society moving ahead, or um, you know, has a lot has enough happened that you think that we're ready to do an about face from that? I sure hope so, uh, Dennis. We've had a century now of all kinds of experiments in government uh, spending and debt and, and intrusiveness in our lives. Uh, from the welfare state to the regulatory state, the deep state, the administrative state, all of that, uh, all those things are creatures of uh, Woodrow Wilson and his progressive ideology, and they haven't worked out very well. I mean, uh, uh, to the extent we are still doing well as a nation is not because of the progressivism or the socialism that our politicians have given us. It's because of the freedoms and the capitalism we haven't yet destroyed. If we go full measure and uh, uh, put these elitist, elitists in charge of every aspect of our lives, which many of them want us to do, uh, then America as we know it will cease to exist. I think Americans uh, need to come to their senses and realize that this is not a sustainable path for either economic solvency or their personal liberty. So I remain optimistic that there may be future events or personalities uh, or ideas that all come together and maybe reverse this destructive trend, but it's been going on pretty much uninterrupted for 100 years. Well, if you're just joining us, my guest today is Mr. Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, prior to serving as the President of FEE, he was also the President of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy for 21 years. And, you know, Larry, I know you talk to uh, a lot of people, but in particular, you do, you do a lot of speeches and you speak to uh, groups of people and often young people. Um, you know, there, there seems to be a, a bit of a gap, at least from my perspective, that, uh, you know, the millennials seem to be really leaning more towards socialism. And, and that's obviously a, a painting that with a broad brush. And then you've got people that have, you know, experienced maybe the uh, better parts of capitalism that, that are, are taking the uh, opposite side or the opposite approach. So as you're talking to people, how do you sense that 
um, the millennials view socialism and the, and the younger people? Do you, do you think that there is uh, some, some seed or, or some uh, hope that maybe we, we get back to a true form of capitalism? Well, because most uh, millennials are uh, or have been recently students of government schools where they get a generally sympathetic view of big government, uh, they do tend to be more sympathetic today than uh, they were, say, 50 years ago, to a kind of socialist agenda. But uh, the good side of that is it's, it's kind of skin deep. You'll find quite often that the same millennials who say, oh, yeah, I, I think socialism is a good idea, you talk to them a little bit and you discover they also like entrepreneurship. They admire people who take risks and create enterprises. Some of them want to start their own businesses, all of which is incompatible with, with socialism. So I think they've been sold uh, on socialism from a very superficial perspective. They're, they're, they've been told often by their teachers that socialism is just caring and sharing and doing good things for people, relieving them of responsibilities, taking charge to make them uh, have a better life. And so, so, you know, if that's the way it's defined, how can you be opposed to it? But as they get older, I think they're going to realize that, hey, this stuff does cost something. <laughs> I'm paying for it. And uh, now I'm having to repay the debt that previous generations uh, put on my shoulders and suffer all the other consequences of this concentration of power. So I have great hope that the millennials of today, uh, at, with a little time and experience, will shed some of these socialistic leanings and hopefully uh, change our education system someday, too, so it's uh, more fair to differing perspectives. You know, Larry, I get, we've got a few minutes left here, and uh, when, when you look at get, getting back to the Federal Reserve, which was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll blame Woodrow Wilson since that's the, the topic of our conversation today, but certainly um, the Federal Reserve has continued to uh, – create monetary policy that's just getting crazier and crazier. Uh, the third quarter of this year, I think, China and Japan, which at one time had a voracious appetite for U.S. government debt, uh, combined bought a total of $2 billion. At the same time, the Fed bought $240 billion of government debt. And of course, they just created money to do that. That trend cannot continue forever. So in your view, um, what does this breaking point look like, and might, might might that be the catalyst for some of these changes we've been talking about? It could be, and at some point there will be a breaking point, unless uh, we come to our senses in the meantime and and choose to reverse policy. And, and part of that in my book would be to uh, get rid of the Fed altogether. That seems pretty unrealistic politically at the moment, but it could happen given the right uh, circumstances. Uh, if there's a widespread awakening at some point among Americans that, hey, this Federal Reserve thing has, has done a pretty lousy job, uh, there can be big change. Uh, I hope that'll happen. But I can't think of another federal agency that has more fully failed uh, the promised uh, benefits uh, that we were given than the Federal Reserve. We were told that if we create it, uh, it will uh, iron out the business cycle, it will preserve the value of the dollar, it will maintain full employment, and yet it's produced uh, one Great Depression, nine or ten recessions, and a currency that's worth about a nickel of uh, when they started. So it's been a manifest failure. Now the problem is getting Americans to realize it. 
Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. Um, he is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I'd encourage you to check out uh, his writings and his work. You can do that at lawrencewreed.com. And uh, Larry, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your schedule and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas. Thank you, Dennis. Merry Christmas to you and also to your listeners. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to our special guest, Mr. Larry Reed, for joining us on today's program. You know, in last week's Portfolio Watch, I gave a bit of an economic update. Looking ahead to 2021, it's helpful to know where we stand today. And I thought in this segment of the program... I would give you a bit of an outlook on business. In particular, uh, I want to reference a letter that was sent to the congressional leadership in Washington, D.C. by the National Restaurant Association. Also, I want to give you a bit of an update on commercial real estate and the banking sectors. So starting with the National Restaurant Association letter. The National Restaurant Association requested that Congress provide some relief for the restaurant industry. The lockdowns that are occurring in much of the country, frankly, are causing economic devastation. And at this point, the devastation and the damage caused is deep enough that we will likely never completely recover. Looking at just the restaurant industry, 87% of full-service restaurants report an average revenue drop of 36%. Guys, restaurants typically don't make a 36% net profit, so that means they go from profitable to not profitable. 17% of all restaurants, nearly one in five restaurants, have now completely and permanently closed. And the vast majority of these permanently closed restaurants were well-established businesses. In fact, many were literally fixtures in their communities. These permanently closed restaurants, on average, had been in business for 16 years, and 16% had been open for at least 30 years, now permanently closed. Now, since the restaurant industry is devastated, it's no surprise the commercial real estate market is also beginning to unravel. Going into next year, I believe that that trend will continue and even likely intensify. Cam Fine, who is the former president of the Independent Community Bankers of America, said this this past week. I don't see any way of avoiding a great deal of pain in the commercial real estate market in 2021. It's almost inevitable. My friends at the Federal Reserve and FDIC are becoming increasingly increasingly uncomfortable with what's going on in the commercial real estate world, as well they should be. While many businesses are closing permanently, still others are finding that employees can be as productive or almost as productive working from home as they can be working from the office. Because of this, many companies are now allowing their commercial real estate leases to expire. Now, As workers begin to work from home permanently, many are leaving urban areas for suburban and rural areas because now they can do so. Uh, 
and that's certainly driving some residential demand in more desirable areas. When you look at Manhattan real estate as an example, Manhattan has literally become a ghost town. A building security firm that works in Manhattan, Castle Systems, reported this past week that New York City has an average occupancy rate for its office real estate of 15.9%. There's more Manhattan real estate office for rent, office space for rent than at any time since 2003. In fact, Castle Systems says that only about 20% of U.S. workers have actually returned to the office. 80%, according to Castle Systems, are continuing to work remotely. And of course, this has a ripple effect on other businesses. Core city businesses in these areas that depend on commuters report 40 to 60% declines in sales. Hotels, restaurants, as I just mentioned, hair salons, barber shops, gyms, laundries are all affected. And of course, these factors will, without a doubt, influence the broad economy. And the stock market should ultimately be affected. We have very overvalued stocks. However, given the massive levels of money printing by the Federal Reserve, the stock market could remain propped up since stocks are priced in U.S. dollars that are losing purchasing power. However, there is certainly no guarantee that they will. And moving into 2021, I would expect that the banking sector could experience some difficulties. A large amount of commercial real estate is leveraged, has mortgages on it. And declining occupancy rates are going to put landlords in the position of being unable to service the debt on their properties. That, in turn, will negatively affect banks. FDIC has identified 356 banks that are heavily concentrated in the commercial real estate market. Now, a lot of these banks are smaller community banks, and some even are already under regulatory guidance. Now, Eric Rosengren, and that name might, may not mean a whole lot to you, but Eric is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and it's his opinion that a decade of ultra-easy money has artificially inflated commercial real estate values. There is a Federal Reserve Bank president that's actually stating truth and stating reality. When you print money, bubbles form, and Mr. Rosengren says that we may have artificially inflated commercial real estate values. Now, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, in September said that Smaller banks often have a lot more exposure to commercial real estate, and they have fewer financial resources to deal with the problem. However, Mr. Powell told Congress that the Fed stands ready to rescue and bail out community banks if it becomes necessary. Of course, the Fed, when rescuing these banks, will just create more money to do so. So what does this mean looking ahead into 2021? And if you've not yet received the December client newsletter that uh, we put out to our clients, giving them a bit of a preview as to what we think you could expect in 2021 and maybe what to do about it, uh, 
go to requestyourreport.com. We'd be glad to send you a copy of the report. But we believe that certainly in real terms and likely in nominal terms, uh, stocks don't look too attractive here. Certainly the banking sector, the hospitality sector, uh, transportation and businesses that depend on discretionary consumer spending will likely not perform very well. On the other hand, companies that may be related to precious metals mining or commodities could do quite well. And as we enter this new normal, we believe that you're going to have to manage money uh, on a tactical basis rather than strategic, and a lot of the old methods won't work. If you'd like to learn more, order our free report at rescueyourreport.com. It's our 2021 forecast issue. Again, the report is available by visiting requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I will be back again next week.